Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and today on this episode, I am your guest too. This is just a little bit of bonus content. Uh, I'm just doing a bit of uh, a bit of uh, big upping of myself here with uh, my new book that is out. Um, it is called The Death of Music Journalism. It's a poetry volume. You will have uh, heard me mention it a few times in recent months across this podcast. Uh, we are launching the book. Uh, at Meow in Wellington on Sunday the 11th of October at 4pm. Everyone is welcome. I've got some other guests. I've got some mute live music and some other people reading their own poetry. Um, with this episode, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the book and how it came about, and I'm going to read a few things from it. It's a little bit of a teaser. So, uh, hey man, if you hate poetry, this might be the episode for you. It might win you over, or this can be the one that you skip. I, I don't mind either way, but... Um, Thank you to people who supported the Boosted campaign for this book and to people who generally have been in support of the idea of it happening. Uh, I share a lot of their poems on Instagram and Facebook over the years and people have given me nice comments about those. So for any of you listening, uh, thank you very, very much and um, you'll hear a little bit more about the whole kind of idea around this book and um, and some of the uh, work that went into it and I promise this won't be a long episode. Thank you. Damn, it feels good to be a gang. Hey, uh, so this is just me, um, no guest, and I don't think I've done that before. I think maybe way back, maybe when the podcast was a year old, or maybe when we got to 100 episodes Damn or something like that, I think I, I did a bit of a clip show and uh, and picked some favourites and did a bit of a ramble to tape. Uh, I'm going to do that now because uh, this week sees the launch of my first book of poems, and I've talked about the poetry book a little bit this year since... Um, since lockdown, because uh, long-term listeners will know that I took a bit of a break during the, well, we all took a break during the lockdown, and I decided to um, put the podcast on hold, and uh, the first person I talked to when uh, came back from that break was Freya Daly Sagrove, a poet, and um, so I sort of, the conversations have, uh, have just uh, gone that way, that I've been talking a little bit about the book because I've been working on it and it was sort of became a bit of a lockdown project and I thought that um, I'd talk to you a little bit about it today um, and I, I don't even know what I'm going to say as you can probably already tell I'm really just rambling and I'll read a few poems and it won't be a, a long long episode it won't be as long as uh, normal interview episodes and there will be normal interview episodes uh, after this so feel free to skip this uh, I'm under no um, delusion that you must listen to every podcast and that you would be at all be interested in my poetry but some of you will be and some of you might want to know a little bit about this uh, and I'm really grateful um, to anyone that is I'm obviously most grateful to Mary and Paul and Sarah at the Cuba Press for um, creating this project with me for the and, and to my friend Matthew Cooper who's an artist who did the amazing painting that is the front cover so it's a book of poems. It is my second book. Um, in 2012, I published a book called On Song, uh, which sometimes comes up in podcast episodes. Um, that was a book of journalism. That was my thoughts on 30 of my favourite New Zealand songs and based around mostly interviews with the songwriters and the artists involved. This is a book of poetry. This is called The Death of Music Journalism. It does have a lot of music in it. In fact, it has so much music in it that um, if you were to look at a copy of the book uh, or purchase a copy of the book uh, you will see on the back cover a QR code which takes you to a Spotify playlist which I made. I mean I'll include a link to that in this episode anyway um, but yeah we thought that was quite fun having the QR code since we, we now live in a kind of um, um, scanned world. Um, many of us remembering to do that um, or forced to do that um, with the with the COVID um, signing in. But uh, there are 79 songs referenced in this collection of poems in, in one way or another. Some are named, some are very overt, others are mm, songs I was responding to or songs I was thinking about or I've you know, referenced a little, not even a line from it, but somewhere in my mind I've I've hinted at something. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the poems starts, when I was 17, it was a very good year, which is obviously referencing a song, but I'm not uh, quoting the lyric from the song. I'm actually talking about when I was 17 and a good thing that happened to me. So that song 
is that Sinatra song is in the playlist. Um, so yeah, I did I did that, which was a fun thing to do as well. And um, I've I've put together this this book. Um, I haven't actually worked out when uh, the, the sort of span of these poems, but I think in terms of when I wrote them, but. I think really we're talking mostly the last two or three years. Um, I, I must go through and work out what the oldest one in here is. There might be one that's as old as five or six years. Um, there's certainly one that's as new as a couple of months ago. There are a few from 2020 in here, um, or at least a couple, and, and there's certainly uh, one that was written just a couple of months ago. Um, I have published some of these on my website on Off The Tracks, they are here in very different versions. They have um, been edited by me, they have been edited by Paul at the Cuba Press, they have been looked over and edited by Mary, uh, they have been edited again by me. This was an interesting process doing this. I'm really, I always sort of thought I was pretty open to, to being edited uh, because that's the that's what happens when you um, submit copy to newspapers. Um, but this was uh, both a rigorous and really kind editing process. I felt so well supported and understood by uh, everyone at the Cuba Press. They they got this project, which is what you would of course hope from, from a publisher. They would want to be into the thing that they were publishing, but they really got it. Um, they got me. They probably got a little bit too much of me towards the end. I was turning up in the... Um, by their request, I should say, I was turning up at their uh, office to... to to work on the poems towards the end we actually sat and pretty much read through them line by line little interesting mathematical things turn up where you know it's going to cost a whole lot more if uh, if you publish extra pages so we actually got into doing line counts line readings uh, moving some of the poems around to gain a few pages and of course um, the old uh, murdering your darlings and getting rid of a few so Right at the end, when we had what we thought was the finished manuscript, I think three poems were taken from it, and um, and I I chose them. I just didn't have a problem with the three that were gone. Uh, I think we all probably knew that they were the ones to go, and I I, I actually I know that I recommended another one, um, and actually Mary and Paul were both very keen for that to stay, so that is in here. Um, and I didn't have a problem with any of the work in here. It's just you've got to be realistic about what goes and what stays. Um, if anyone thinks that, uh, you know, well, what are you doing publishing poetry? How did that come about? Um, and if you've been a listener of the podcast, you'll probably know this, but um, I've certainly written poems um, for longer than I ever wrote music journalism. Um, I reckon I wrote my first poem when I was 12, and uh, I certainly wrote my first... Um, poem that I wanted to be a poem and 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 it was uh, I don't remember what the exact first one was but I certainly know that I was writing poetry regularly at 13. I had an electric typewriter and um, I would sit in my room at night and after school and I'd hammer out poems and, and in some cases I'd handwrite them first and then type them up and then I got into thinking it was experimental to just freeform on the electric typewriter and, and cross things out and um, you know type back over things and all of that sort of stuff and then um, when I moved out of home went to university I was still I was writing poetry right through high school um, and I think towards the very end of high school I I, I certainly started going to open mics uh, I remember vividly seeing Sam Hunt um, in Hastings and in fact there's a poem in the book about that 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 is the new poem that is the most recent poem in the book um, Actually, shall I read? Oh, oh, why am I asking? I, I will read that as the first poem. Um, that seems like a good place to start. It's actually the second poem in the book, but it's, since I've referenced it, um, before I carry on talking about my poetry journey, I will I'll talk about this poem and read it. Um, I, yeah, I first met Sam Hunt in my final year of high school, and of course I knew who he was. Um, I had read some of his stuff already, and I was, I'd become a big fan. I mean, he was the guy that you knew of when you knew about poetry in New Zealand um, in terms of someone visible um, someone you could actually go and see regularly doing it and and there were you know I, I, I actually grew up as much with Sam Hunt as I did with John Gadsby's impersonation of, of Sam Hunt uh, on TV I remember that um, anyway so I went to the Cat and Fiddle in Hastings uh, which is no longer there uh, but used to do a regular poetry 
um, Monday night open mic with a guest and one night it was Sam Hunt was the guest and I don't know if I read in front of like in, in the open mic before him I don't think I would have done that then but I did go up and read a couple of poems at a couple of the cat and fiddle things when I was about 17 and I was very nervous to do that um, and then uh, flashing forward a few years Sam Hunt was a reg regularly the um, the guest poet in Upper Hutt for what was then called Montana Poetry Day which is now Phantom Billstickers Poetry Day um, and I went and saw him perform and actually got to open for him a couple of times and um, that's really what this poem was about but the first time I saw him in Upper Hutt I, I had been reading during the day, I'd been doing events and I, he was the main event, I didn't open for him but I sat on the floor in front, right in the front row and um, took a photograph of him which I've still got and the photo is in the book and the photo informs this poem and the poem is called I took a photo of Sam Hunt in Upper Hutt 20 years ago and uh, the poem attached to that rather catchy title goes like this I have a photograph of Sam Hunt I took it looking up at him from the floor my jaw down by my camera and me in awe of it all it was about 20 years ago and I had been reading his words for at least 10 years then I had met him briefly outside the pub in Hastings where he was looking to cadge a fag after reciting Baxter and quoting lines from Dylan, Lou Reed and Keith Richards. I told him in nervous schoolboy rising voice that I loved Lou Reed and knew the New York album he'd referenced, my favourite. I hadn't had to tell him I snuck into the pub underage and when he asked me for a durry I was almost embarrassed to be a healthy non-smoker. He signed my book, Simon, from one Lou Reed man to another, Sam. And I could only ever read it in his voice like a poem only he might ever write. I loaned that book out to someone many years later, never got it back. A year after taking this photograph of Sam shaking the poems from his shoulders, I was his opening act. Nervously, I read a poem about how history and opinion were both seven-letter words, but only one fits correctly into the crossword. And this was inspired by the crosswords me and my wife had been having as she focused on completing the newspaper puzzle. And I became Sermon Sweetman, going on about how Elvis really was the best, the greatest, the first, the one. After my set, there was a note at the bar to join Sam in his room, and I did. He had a bottle of wine he wanted to share, said he didn't like hanging in the bar for too long during other people reading because he'd get bugged by the punters and it wasn't fair to him or the person on stage or the others in the pub there to listen. We drank the wine and he told me he had seen a couple of my poems and I'd done a good job and he liked very much the one about the crossword. I told him far too quickly that he could have it and shuffled through the pages to hand him the poem. He nodded and several seconds later he declared, well all right, he stood in the stovepipes and then opened a little vintage suitcase, mumbling as he showed me his kid's school photo. He carried it in the case with him. It was the whole class photo, covered in glad wrap, and his son's five-year-old face was circled in red marker. He said something like, well, you've given me some of your very best words. I'd like to give you some good words too. He shuffled through typed pages and then paused to look at one for a while, then loudly said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to give you some Wordsworth, as he handed me a cover poem which made total sense, since the sum worth of his own words is forever held in his head. I kept that Wordsworth poem in a folder for years, then lost it or binned it or loaned it out like the signed book, never to return. I've got the photograph still. I look at it most days. So yeah, that's my little, that's my little tribute to Sam Hunt, who's been a towering influence um, for me and just a fun person to have. I mean... I don't consider him um, a friend or colleague or anything, it's just I can't believe I've met him and I've met him a couple of times and we have exchanged a couple of emails around the fact that we were going to do a couple of events together and I have reviewed a couple of his books and sent him reviews of them. Um, I'm just a fan, I'm just a fan uh, of Sam's work and I, I do look at that photo just about every day, it's in my house on the pin board and it's a reminder um, of how great he is and of how if you keep doing things uh, for the right amount of time you not only find your voice but other people find your voice too and I see that to be a really important and influential thing. So that was that. that is the newest poem in the book. I really wanted that in there as soon as I wrote it. I didn't write it for the book um, uh, but it does fit I guess the theme of the book. 
um, or the, some of the themes. So yeah, that's that's one. Um, there are I've worked out counting this up, and I didn't know this or plan this. There are 44 poems, unless I'm really shit at maths and counting. There are 44 poems in this book, and I turned 44 a couple of months ago. So that to me was kind of fun. Um, I'm going to read you. Uh, some of these I've read out on video before, if anyone's watched those, and some of them I have read when I've done some readings recently, but I don't imagine people listening to this uh, follow my um, attempted poetry career too much, and, and, and maybe you've switched off already, so I'm not too worried if I do double up, but I'm just randomly going to pick some things, but I have been reading this one a bit lately, because I like it, um, I feel like it's... Um, a thing I arrived at a couple of, maybe maybe wrote this a couple of years ago and or a year ago certainly and I feel like um, this sums up um, my issue with um, when people think that I have been unfair in music reviewing. So this is called The Fucking Problem. Anita O'Day didn't know she was being filmed for jazz on a summer's day. Have you seen that fucking film? It's everything. And then right in the middle of everything Anita O'Day shuffles saunters to the stage. She has this hat and gloves, the dress, and so much sass. She was high as a motherfucking kite, and she sings one of the greatest versions of one of the greatest songs, Sweet Georgia Brown. And she's on the junk and unaware of the cameras, and it goes down in history, goes down as history. She was just trying to make it through the set. And yet I'm supposed to say that some flavour of whatever month is good? just because they have a lot of likes on Facebook, followers on Twitter, and some towering and unrealistic version of the latest kind of self-belief. This is the fucking problem. All you can do is learn to be a good loser. You know who said that? You can guess, I'm sure, because the end of the poem is nearly here. Anita O'Day said that. Everything she said counted, whether it was for the record or not. Uh, so that's another early poem. I'm going to flip uh, through... A little bit now because otherwise I'll just read all the I'll just start reading them in order um, there's four sections in the book um, I came up with the idea to give them sort of what I thought were kind of funny titles relating to um, music reviewing I guess and, and music so the first section that I've read those two poems from is called um, <clears throat> starts off well a lot of name dropping though and I don't hear a single um, and then the second section, let's read something from the second section. It's called The the Difficult Second Section. Um, and I'm going to read... I, I quite like this poem. In fact, this is I've turned this into a prose poem. So this appears in the book like a block of text, um, just like a paragraph or a prose poem, a little short story. And uh, I originally wrote it as a poem, so I've totally changed the, the look of this um, in editing it. Um, and... Uh, it's called The End of the Larkin Line. Um, I'm going to be a, a dick and um, explain the, the couple of references. Many people will know this, some won't. You're not, you're, not, um, you're not clever if you know, or maybe you are clever if you know it, but you're certainly not clever for, uh, you're not a, you know, a dick or a dumbass for not knowing this um, at all. But uh, The End of the Line is obviously a Travelling Walbury's um, song. Philip Larkin was a famous poet. Um, so I've called it the end of the Larkin line because I'm referencing him. Uh, he had a famous poem about how you get fucked up by your mum and dad. Um, they fuck you up was how it started and uh, an outrageous poem for the time and, and a wonderful poem. And I guess I wanted to respond to that but I wanted to respond to that in the form of a memory that uh, how I still hold really dear of a really simple thing that happened. It was us as a family going to buy the Travelling Wilburys album on cassette tape. It was a big deal. Um, so I'll read this. It's called The End of the Larkin Line. When the first Travelling Wilburys album was released, we took a drive into Hastings. Friday night, late night shopping, it was me and my brother in the back of the car, our usual spots, and mum and dad up front. They bought the album on cassette tape. No CDs then, not in our house anyway, and so we drove in, got told on the way that the folks would be buying an important album. And then... When home, we all sat on the floor by the stereo and they played it. Mum and Dad told us about how this was one of the Beatles and the guy from ELO and that Roy Orbison was a rock and roll legend and Bob Dylan a poet and a prophet. Tom Petty was the young guy, the new kid on the block, but he'd been around the block riding on a tune or two. We sat and listened to the album right through and then again a second time straight away. We were allowed to stay up late to take it all in, or try at least. 
Your mum and dad might fuck you up, but the real tragedy is you hardly ever remember to thank them. So that's the yeah, that's the that's the first poem in that section. Um, my dad features in this book way more than I thought he would. Uh, I didn't really plan to feature anyone, um, and actually, family uh, features in this book a lot. There's a lot of there are, there are the memory poems, the little stories really of things that happen. Um, I don't know that my dad um, necessarily wants to be in this book, and I I don't know that he'll read it. Um, I don't know that he'll either be happy or unhappy about being in the book. Um, but I mostly think um, these are really cool little things about him because he's a funny character. Um, I love my parents a lot and um, they've been so generous to me. And reading back these poems in the book, I like the fact that they're in here. My mum has read it. My mum gave me the kindest uh, compliment that really anyone could give and, and only uh, a person that closely connected can, can say this to you and have it mean this. But she said, I've read the book. Uh, right through, I've nearly read it through twice, and I'm very proud of you. And I thought that's all that needed to be said. Um, so I'll read a little story about them that features them both, particularly my dad. Uh, it's called Dates Gone. We lined up at the counter to order coffees and a snack, the way families do when catching up now. My mum and my dad visiting briefly, and we had done a wee tour of the town, so it was time to sit down for a bit. My father ordered a date scone, and when the person at the counter asked if he'd like it heated, he threw the heat right back. Absolutely not. We found a table, and he was still going. Absolutely pointless. No one said anything. A beat. Another. And then, I hate when they ask if you'd like the scone heated. Who wants a scone heated? It ruins it. Simple as that. These were the facts. I made the mistake of suggesting that actually maybe more than a few people liked their scones heated. Seemed likely if the waitstaff figured it worth asking of anyone, right? Well, I don't. A beat and another. And then... It ruins the flavour. There's no point. It's messy. The butter turns to slop. It crumbles. It falls to bits and pieces. These were the reasons, or some of them. My mother was stirring her drink. I was too. Well, I was stirring my own drink, I mean. The scone arrived. I felt like it... Deserved a fanfare. I heard trumpets in my head at least. He spread the butter. Corners. A thick blanket. Yellow on yellow, but faded. A quick flick of the knife. Turn it over and spread once again. And then the first bite. We waited. We felt we needed to. See, he announced proudly, that is a scone. I didn't check with mum, but I'm sure we've both known that already. And that, he continued, is how you do it. You don't heat it. There's no point. It's ridiculous. I said I agree, and he looked hopeful for a second. It's certainly ridiculous, I confirmed, as we stood to head for the car. I like how my phone dinged right when the scone arrived. It was like the, um, it's like a little hint that you actually are supposed to heat them. Um, so he'd be fucked off at that, I think. Um, I should read a poem for my darling wife, Katie, who the book is dedicated to. It's dedicated, in fact, I've got two here. On The book is dedicated to Katie and to Oscar. Um, they are... The Loves of My Life, the book is dedicated to Katie for everything that you are and for Oscar to all that you will be. So here's a poem for each of them. Really short ones. New love song. I'd sink to my knees if I didn't have you. I should sink to my knees because I do. And this one's for Oscar. It's called Big O, Little O. And it's the second mention of Roy Orbison or reference to Roy Orbison in this book. So Big O slash Little O. Only in dreams will I hear a voice like the Big O. I wake up to my own little O telling me it's time to make his lunch. It's a far cry. So blue. Um, yeah, I'll read one more from this section um, because um, some of my favourite poems to write are when I think back to what an absolute fucking goon I used to be. I mean, I'm still, I still am in so many ways. But um, Jesus fuck, when we were at university, um, we got up to some stupid shit as people do and I in particular was a moron so I am reminded of that as I still live in the city where I went to university um, I moved to Wellington in 1995 from growing up in Hawke's Bay there are several Hawke's Bay poems in this book as you might have guessed from a couple of the references already that I've read and talked about and um, obviously there are <laughs> just about everything else is a Wellington poem I think there's one Auckland poem um, I don't really think of them in that, in that way. Um, 
they're just poems um, but if I'm forced to consider the geographic location then most of these take place in Wellington I guess um, this one certainly does it is called the flat on the terrace I walk along the terrace see the flat I lived in for years and years I had no cares back then beyond knowing where the next CD was going to come from my flatmates thought I was mad and these were people that cheated on their girlfriends, took carving knives with them for late night walks, you know, just in case. One of them tried to kill a mouse by smearing peanut butter on a golf putting return machine. One of them drank cups of tea while shitting. One of them watched pornos while doing his taxes. I wanted to shout, and I'm the bad guy, like Michael Douglas does in that film. Hang on, maybe I hadn't quite seen that just then. It was madness though, that's for fucking sure. No one carried a key and one day when the window wasn't unlatched for someone to open and step through, he just threw his drink bottle through it, pushed the glass aside and stepped in. No problem. When it was my night to cook, I'd write a check for the pizza place and disappear, go elsewhere, anywhere else, possibly in a bunker because the check would likely bounce. I had a room full of music and cigarette smoke, a head full of possibly undiagnosed anxiety or more likely laziness and I had about 50 or 60 square grid maths books that I wrote poems in. The others in the flat could not handle that. The time when I found a guy taking a piss into an electric frying pan on my bed seemed reasonable, particularly when he explained that the drinking game in the other room had it that no one was allowed to urinate. Several of the others had pissed themselves in front of each other, probably mid-swig, but this guy had standards and a contingency. And this wasn't even the worst thing that could happen of a night. We rode a shopping trolley down the stairs and into the wall, missing a giant window that could have launched at least one of us into a waiting hospital bed. We drank a five-litre bottle of whiskey on a pouring frame in one night. Someone got laid out for denying a shot. And all of this, and so much more, comes flooding back to me on Wednesdays, after lunch, having finished one job to get to another, and then from there down the road to collect my son from his school. I look across the road at the house, somehow still standing, and think of Tom Waits and Bukowski and teaching drum lessons in the lounge while my protesting flatmate tried to watch TV at the same time, his arms folded, his brow knotted. I think of Baxter and Sam Hunt and Loris Edmund and the one-night stand that was referred to as a spear chucker, presumably because of the colour of her skin, and that any of these th sins don't come close to the very worst of their behaviour back then. I heard one of the guys is a merchant banker, well why not, he was rehearsing for that gig when he was sleepwalking blind drunk to shit on a couch. The other two I have no idea, commerce degrees and they graduated long before me. We're all lucky to be alive, and beyond that, to not know anything much about each other anymore. So yeah, there's a happy memory. Um, that poem I wrote a wee while ago, I reckon I wrote that about three years ago. I was doing a nannying job and I used to uh, look after a, a, a little boy um, who was about one and um, on Wednesdays, it's, I mean it's changed now the time, but on Wednesdays used to be when I was talking on RNZ, so I used to have to drop him off to his mother at work and then um, and then rip up to the terrace, do my, do my chat on RNZ and then walk down the terrace to my son's school. Um, walking past this flat I used to live in. It's just funny to be reminded of things like that. Um, the final section of the book is called... Um, hang on, did I, did I tell you the... Did I talk about the second and third section? So the second section is difficult. Oh no, sorry, the third section of the book is called... Um, yeah, but that's just like your opinion, man. So there's an obvious uh, film reference there. Um, and I'm, I want to read something a little bit different. It's funny how some things come up more than once in this book. So obviously Sam Hunt just got another mention there. Um, another thing that I was very pleased to get across the line was not just two mentions of Prince, but two mentions of songs or the Prince, the Batman soundtrack era. So there's two poems that directly reference the Batman movie soundtrack that Prince made in 1989. It was a big deal for me that. Um, I love all Prince, as I think anyone that's read my stuff or listened to this podcast knows, but um, this was a pretty different poem for me, this one. I um, have only actually, well, I ha I've read it out just recently for a video that by the time this podcast is out, the video will have broadcast, but I had to pre-record a video um, for Poetry Live, a Facebook page, and I had to do a half-hour reading. Um, and I decided to read this because it's a weird poem to me. 
um, but I like it, and so I'm really glad that Paul liked it and wanted it in the book. I did a series of these silly little short story prose poem things, um, riffing on the idea of the TED Talks, and I wanted to do talks about specific TEDs. It all started with me writing um, a poem called the TED Danson Talks, and I just shared a whole lot of facts about Ted Danson uh, who I realised had been in my life and so, as a TV actor through you know has just had this incredible career so I just thought it was interesting for me it all started with Cheers and and kind of goes back to reruns of Cheers but he's just been on the screen forever uh, since so so once I wrote that one I started thinking oh what are some other Ted's that I could write about and the second Ted that I thought of which is possibly disturbing was Ted Bundy uh, who I want to pre I want to date this um, by saying I did write this before the Netflix documentary and biopic I've long been interested in how cruel and horrible Ted Bundy obviously was and a few other serial killers um, they do fascinate us I think um, anyway uh, this is the only Ted talk that's in this book there was going to be a Ted Nugent one but I just thought actually fuck him he's such a cock I don't want him in my book even though I shit on him in the poem I didn't actually want him in the book he can get fucked but Ted Bundy uh, it's not like I'm um, talking this guy up at all and he's not around so that's a bit different I was happy for the Ted Bundy one to be in there but Ted Nugent can get fucked the Ted Turner one I quite like and um, the Ted Danson one I really like but I don't know if I even submitted that one I'm not sure um and I must do some more TEDs at some point. So if anyone's got recommendations for famous TEDs that they want to hear about, uh, I'll research them and write them up. Um, meanwhile, you can hear the Ted Bundy talks. They asked Ted Bundy, after he was caught, why he was able to strangle and murder so many people. 17 women at that point, or something. His answer, there are so many people. My question, who is they? Ted Bundy died in 1989. He is listed on Wikipedia as an American serial killer, kidnapper, rapist, burglar and necrophile. Just as, say, Lenny Henry gets the wiki treatment and is dubbed a British stand-up comedian, actor, singer, writer and television presenter. You can click on hyperlink text to find out more about the roles of serial killer, kidnapper, rapist, burglar and necrophile. Wikipedia assumes you don't need to know anything else about the roles of actor, singer writer, television presenter, nor British stand-up comedian. There are no further links. The pro wrestler King Kong Bundy was named after King Kong and Ted Bundy. His aim was to be seen as being as scary as both, a dreaded combination. The pro wrestler King Kong Bundy is still alive. This surprised me. He turned 60 just yesterday, but only if you're reading this today. Ted Bundy was regarded as handsome and charismatic by his victims. I'm not sure how we know this. We can't quite take their word for it. I'm sure he did. Sometimes Ted Bundy kept parts of a victim for months, turning a light on, opening a cupboard, taking some joy from seeing what was there, from knowing it belonged now to him. Other times he would sneak into a room and just bludgeon someone in the dark, smash their skull and leave. Ted Bundy referred to himself as the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. I never got to meet him, but I believed him. In 1989, Ted Bundy died. He was executed. The electric chair was his final resting place. In 1989, my favourite song was Electric Chair by Prince. So that's the Ted Bundy one, which I'm laughing because uh, I'm remembering, um, oh, well, A, how absurd that all is, but um, I'm remembering that there was a line cut from that, um, which I rather liked, and it is totally over the top, and I think that's what I liked about it. But I described Ted Bundy sometimes walking into a room and fucking bits of the corpses. Um, I think I said just um, fucking them to bits and absolute pieces or something. And I think it was Paul said, yeah, it's probably a bit much. And I thought, yeah, fair enough. Um, I'll give you another Hawke's Bay poem to change the mood from that one. This is called Winner Winner Chicken Dinner. I am from Hawke's Bay, where we're good at the weather. The best world class? Don't believe me, asked my dad. I made that mistake only yesterday in fact, didn't even realise it at the time. He asked what I was doing. It's hot, I explained. Real hot down here, so hot right now. But it was hot where he was, perhaps even hotter. I wasn't competing, at least not that I knew, and though neither of us could be in two places at once and both of us seemed happy right where we were, he had won the weather argument. Again, of that he was certain. The red ribbon again, burning hot, yes! 
Um, so that, that's these are in the third section um, of the book, and um, that's another another poem referencing my dad. Um, the fourth section of the book is simply called "And in the End," uh, and you might get that reference. It's also just the end of the book. Um, and I'm just having a look here. These are um, a lot of music poems in here. Um, and um, a lot of... Well, I'll read this one. Um, this is me, you know, and apologies if this uh, upsets anyone or triggers anyone. Um, but this is a poem directly about the suicide of a friend of mine. And I like to read this because I asked his um, younger brother for permission to not include this in the book and dedicate it to to him, to my friend Hamish. Um, so, you know, we, we've all had this in our lives and a couple of years ago we, we heard this news that um, Hamish had, had taken his life. And I hadn't seen him for a year or two before that he'd lived in Sydney. But, you know, this is a guy I went right through school with and uh, knew very well at university and he, you know, he came to our wedding. And, um, and we had an interesting friendship where... We might not speak for months, we might not see each other for a while, but when we did, we just got straight into talking about, um, I mean, I feel like this with all of my friends, but we just got straight into talking about the things that mattered, you know, music, movies, um, and uh, and TV shows, and books, and comics, and cartoons, and just shit like that, just pop culture stuff, that's what we cared about, uh, I think, and um, me with him, definitely, we were into, you know, we were so different. Uh, but we were so into uh, Faith No More, we were so into Lenny Kravitz at a particular time anyway, and we were so into Sonny Rollins, and there were other things. But uh, what I loved about Hamish's uh, worldview with music was how into, or really Beastie Boys was a big one for all of us, but um, yeah, how he was really into jazz, and he really knew his stuff about some jazz. So I called, when I, you know, when I heard this news, I sat down and I wanted to write something to pay tribute to him, um, but I also wanted to comment on um, on suicide, uh, and you know, because we're not allowed to say that in the press, which I think is fucking stupid. Um, and so I wanted to say that and talk about it and how hard it is for people to talk about it. Um, and this poem was a tricky one to go in the book. I felt very confident and comfortable about it going in. Um, my editor wanted to, and publisher wanted to me to think about it a little bit more, and. Uh, and wondered if it should go in or not, and I wanted it in there, and um, we, we, we did, I did change it around a tiny bit, and um, here we go, it's called, We Bonded Over Sonny Rollins and Faith No More and Lenny Kravitz and so much more, and it is for Hamish. We lost a good one this week, a soldier no longer reporting for duty, his war over, he wore it as well as he could I guess. If you ask me to take a guess on who might succumb and how fucking gross and dumb I might have just stammered his name. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't a shock, hasn't knocked me for six, doesn't sting more than just a bit. Suicide is hardly talked about, talked about, hardly. Speculation isn't wise, isn't nice, is never fun, shouldn't be done, and confirmation makes you wince. You had a unique energy, you were firecracker mad. May you dance, may your dance continue, I hope you paint your masterpiece. So that's for Hamish. Um, I should read a poem about my brother um, because there is one in here. It's definitely about me and my brother. In fact, so much so the poem is called My Brother and Me. This is the Auckland poem. Um, I think the only Auckland poem. Um, yeah, my brother and me. My brother lives in a different city. In fact, we're worlds apart. There are a few years between us and salary brackets too. We have different hobbies. He likes counting his money. I wouldn't last long at that. My brother lives in a different city, in fact, we're worlds apart, but recently we've found common ground, we're fathers, we have our own families now, and we take them to the zoo, do things like that, things people with families might do. So on a recent trip together to the zoo, it was a stroll down memory lane. We hadn't been there, in that same place, together. In over 30 years, the bears were in different places, but the further we walked, the more familiar it seemed. And then we got to the rhino, majestic thing its head lowered and searching, its horns and hide reminding us that it is linked to the dinosaurs. We're not, I said, leaving until we see it drop a shit. My brother sniggered, not so much at what I had said, more at the possibility, and then, as if on cue, not a shit, but a huge whooshing sound like an outboard motor. This thing was pissing an enormous, efficient surge, and we laughed, my brother and me, no longer worlds apart, because some days all you need 
is a huge rhino pissing. Um, I wrote this poem um, that I, uh, I, I liked um, about Bob Dylan. I was 42 when I wrote this poem. Um, I'm 44 now. Um, I called the poem Bob Dylan Wrote Infidels when he was 42, and I quoted extensively from a Bob Dylan song um, called Don't Fall Apart On Me Tonight. And then when we got to publishing the book, the little issue of permissions came up, and I had been, you know, I mean, I've, I've worked in various forms of publishing and writing for years, and I have understood a lot about song royalties and publishing and um, I had just been so naive to think that well we're just publishing a little poetry book in little old New Zealand we don't need to ask for permission but we do um, and so um, I had about five poems in here that um, directly quoted from songs and you can you can mention a song title and you can mention an album title but you cannot directly quote lyrics unless you get the permission cleared and that costs money and um, it was going to cost a lot to get the permissions cleared for this book so I asked my uh, friend uh, Jan Hellregel who works in publishing to investigate it for me but that was plan B plan A was to rewrite the poems first so I did that um, and uh, and had those in, in backup uh, so that it wasn't, you know, a huge problem. And I, and I seriously thought that we probably wouldn't include any of the poems that sought permissions. We'd just leave them out. And one of the ones, coincidentally, one of the poems extensively quoted from a Tom Waits lyric, and that is now gone. But that's gone because uh, I think it was a weaker poem and it was a longer poem, so it just became an issue of page space. When we were trying to whittle this down to the right amount of pages, that was, an e that was the first one I thought of to get rid of. Um... Yeah, so anyway, um, an interesting thing happened with this Bob Dylan one where this was going to open the book, uh, I think, or at least be second in the book. And I can't articulate it, but when I read it, the new version of it, I just decided it had to be at the back. So it's now the second to last poem. So that's kind of interesting to me. It might be not interesting to anyone else, but I want to read it because I haven't actually read this since I rewrote it. And it's probably the one I've rewritten the most extensively. It's quite different, hence me wanting it moved. Um, but yeah, it's called Dylan Wrote Infidels When He Was 42. I have been thinking a lot about infidels just lately. Bob was about my age when he made it. That's not worth thinking about too much, obviously. He had made 21 albums ahead of it, though, so it wasn't a case of beginner's luck. Some people talk about infidels like it was a comeback, as if he had ever been away. He just went somewhere with his material that some people weren't interested in. That was either their loss or it wasn't, but it was not his fault. He was just doing his job as he's always done. But Infidels is where he strips the artifice. It's where he aims right for the heart. 21 albums before it, many of them better than albums anyone else has made. But on none of those albums did he ever sum it up quite so simply, so brilliantly, as when he said, or possibly even sung, that he would not handle it if the person fell apart on him, not on that night. The yearning of the day just being the worry of what might be to come and the hope to have that person, not just then, but forever. A forever that was crystallised in that moment, that night. That's the heart of it all, right there. Nearly the best thing he ever wrote. And that's saying something, which is what Dylan does almost all the time. But mostly he does it best when no one's looking, when fewer fans are listening. That's his secret gift. He'll never let the fans see him falling apart. He knows they could not handle it. He does his falling apart between the lines. Saves his best work for when you need it. Um... Yeah, I, um, I'm proud of this book, of course. Of course I am. I'm so, I'm so proud of it that um, I uh, might be the only published author or poet to begin their acknowledgements. This book wouldn't exist without me. Um, I couldn't resist doing that. I then said, I think that's fairly obvious, um, but no book is made by the writer alone. And so then I get into actually thanking people. Um, it was hard to name names. Uh, obviously, the Cuba Press, Mary and Paul and Sarah... Um, make this happen so they were the first names I'd already dedicated it to Oscar and Katie but I mentioned them my mum and dad and my brother because they are all in these poems and they're in more of these poems than any of us would have probably thought um, and so I just say I hope that they're okay with that because I wouldn't exist in the way that I do in the world without them um, and then of course Matthew Cooper who created this incredible artwork Matt was a podcast guest back on episode 9 
Um, <laughs> so he um, also not only went to high school with me and intermediate and primary school, but kindergarten. We've known each other for 40 years. Um, and he is one of my favourite artists and one of my favourite people. Um, I used to play in an Irish band, which I've referenced a few times on the podcast. It was called Finn McCall, and the lead singer of Finn McCall was a guy called Tony Chad, who I've not seen for a long time. Tony was the first person to ever publish my poems. He had a little uh, a little poetry zine, really, called Valley Micropress, and he was the guy who got me um, regularly performing poems. I would go out and do these upper hut poetry days. So I wanted to shout out to, to Tony. I'm not going to read all the acknowledgements. Um, but I did want to shout out to him. There are various other names mentioned here. Um, some of my favourite poets, and many of them are musicians, and some of them are comedians, um, my favourite writers. But if you want to look at that, you can look at that. Um, I did mention some instrumental musicians. I feel like they've said more to me without saying any words. And then some of the people that I do want to quickly shout out to um are uh, Freya Daly Sadgrove and Rachel McAlpine who will be reading at my launch whose whose words I think are amazing and they'll be reading their words at the launch which is wonderful and Pip Adam who has been a podcast in fact well, all three of them have been podcast guests but Pip Adam is an amazing writer and she will be launching the book and I can't believe my luck um, that she will be launching the book um, and Carl Shooker who's a friend and a previous podcast guest as well and an amazing writer he read the book he was an early reader of the book and he wrote uh, an amazing um, piece for the back cover a blurb um, I guess they're called um, and I didn't even want to read that out I could just leave I just want to leave that for people to discover but I do want to thank Carl um, and I've also mentioned here poetry at the fringe and poetry in motion which are two um, open mic nights that happen at the Fringe Bar in Wellington and I've road tested a few poems there and uh, in a couple of weeks I'll be the guest poet um, doing, doing a full reading in fact the week after the launch so I'll be doing like another little event there which is cool I'm really pleased to be there and I love those places they they just let you get up and do whatever you, <laughs> whatever you like which is what I love doing with this stuff um, yeah I think I've gone on for way too long way longer than I thought and I haven't even read the super long poems I guess the Sam Hunt one's a bit long but um, man there's some longer poems in here there's one about Robbie Williams which it won't be a surprise because uh, he comes up on the podcast a bit um, there's one about uh, Mark Knopfler who I interviewed there's one about meeting Bruno Lawrence um, there's one about there's two about the Beatles um, uh, and I mentioned the couple of that well, I read one that mentioned Prince there's another one that's more directly about the Prince Batman album um, I might read you two very short poems to finish that are kind of linked one's in the middle of the book what section does it fall in I think it's in the second section or is it the, no it's at the end of the first section I dedicate this one to everyone because that's what it's called it's called everyone um, these are poems about criticism uh, music critics and things that I've done so this one's called everyone it says I said the orchestra was bad and a guy wrote in and called me a cunt and told me to wash we're all critics at the end of the day so that's a nice short one and the final poem in the book is going to be on a phantom bill sticker's poetry poster which I can't again I can't believe my luck I once had a poem on a phantom bill sticker's poetry poster a few years ago maybe about four years ago called unfriendship that poem is not in this book um but it is on off the tracks if people want to see it. Um, but yeah, I just got this message that they're going to put a poetry poster up of this. It's a really short poem. It's the shortest poem in the book. It's four lines. It's called Real Talk. No one ever built a statue in honour of a critic, but only because they knew it could never be good enough. The only final thing I want to say now is that um, some people, maybe some people listening, it is mentioned in the acknowledgement, some people actually contributed to a boosted campaign um, to see the publication of this book to help with it and uh, I'm not very good at that stuff I'm not really good at asking for that kind of help I'd rather try and just soldier on and do things and hope to get paid and sometimes not get paid but um, I'm just so blown away that people contributed and that we met that goal and that we actually surpassed that goal which is why we are having the launch that we're having which is going to uh, feature as I said Freya and Rachel reading and it's also going to feature uh, 
an English musician who's moved here recently, who goes under the name Dr. Blue. Mike, he is a um, poet and a musician, so he'll be doing a little bit of reading as well as playing. He's a blues guy, a one-man band blues guy. And um, and so they're going to read, and Mike's going to sing and play, and Pip's going to launch the book, and Mary McCullum from Cuba Press will say some words, and then I'll um, read some poems. And I'm going to MC the thing. I'm not going to have someone MC it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stand up and introduce all these amazing people. And then one of them can introduce me. But um, I'm going to I'm going to talk them up because I'm so stoked to be sharing the stage with really great people and not making it um, just your boring old book launch where you go to a, go to a bookstore out of obligation because you know someone and you stand there and a whole lot of people say boring book things. And then the poet gets up and they read their words either well or not that well but maybe they're brilliantly written in the book um, but they're not brilliantly read and then everyone shuffles off with the absolute obligation of having to buy a book um, and then there's an awkward big boring queue to get it signed we're not doing that we're going to meow the bar in Wellington where there's heaps of room uh, it's on Sunday the 11th of October at 4pm it's free Unity Books will be there selling copies of the book but you can just come and check it out and leave when you like but if you want to buy a book that's so awesome and um, you can get it signed by me and then you can wonder what the hell I've written because my handwriting is so bad um, but thank you this has been an indulgent hour of me talking about my book and reading from it and uh, hey you know dock my pay as I always say see you next week with um, an interview um, our usual show and thank you for listening if you did and thank you for reading uh, if you've already got a copy of the book they are out there and if you can't get it signed at the launch but you want to send it to me or seek me out uh, I'm easy to find get in touch and if you want a personalised copy of the book just let me know and um, once again thank you um, here's to the death of music journalism just a minute for you Just a minute before you touch the door What is it that you're trying to achieve, girl? Do you think we can talk about it some more? You know the streets are filled with vipers Who've lost all real hope You know it's not even safe no more In the palace of the Tomorrow